Good morning and welcome. It's a beautiful Lord's Day morning. Trust that, uh, that your Thanksgiving week went well, and we certainly welcome our guests and our visitors. As we prepare to worship the Lord, we need His help that the worship service might go well, that our hearts might be tuned to Him, and that His Word and Spirit might take the effect that He intends in us, that we can give, give Him glory. So let us begin our time together by seeking God together in a moment of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for each one whom you have brought to this place. We pray that you who know the hearts and minds and situations of each one would minister to each one in the way that will draw them closer unto you. Grant that all that we do, all that we think even, would bring honor to your name, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us to worship with these words from 1 Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Congregation of our Lord, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 204 in our Psalter hymnal. 204, we'll sing the first four stanzas.
Having called us to His worship, God reminds us of our obligations as those who are His. That is the obligation to put off the old man that was characterized by sin, that was characterized by enslavement to the things of the flesh and of the world, and to put on instead that holiness and righteousness that reflects Christ. And so in His law, again, calling us to show our gratitude, to show that we belong to Him. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it... You shall not do any work, you, nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now this law was not intended to be a ladder by which we climb up into God's favor. It's not intended to be a to-do list so that we can reconcile ourselves to God. We can't. In fact, when Jesus summarized this law, He showed us how absolutely comprehensive it is, saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, with absolutely everything in you. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we fail. We fall short. And so we have to confess that our hope is found not in our doing, but in the doing of Christ, in what He did to pay for our sin and to obtain for us the righteousness and holiness we need, which we receive through faith. So let us confess together that our hope is not in us, but in Him, and that we long to live a life of gratitude before Him. We do that by singing hymn number 389, 389 in our Psalter hymnal. We'll sing all three stanzas as our confession.
confirming that confession. Ephesians 2 tells us you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." This is our confidence. This is our life. That Christ has done everything we never could. And that therefore we are secure before God in Him. And knowing that, we can come with confidence before God in prayer. Now as we do so, just a couple of uh, uh, prayer concerns to raise. Um, We're thankful that Dan and Kathy can be with us. Dan was in the hospital until Tuesday. and, uh, And the Lord provided... Uh, relief for his pain. So please pray for God to continue providing relief and healing for Dan. Um, Likewise, last Sunday, Ryan was in the hospital and and God has uh, been kind to relieve his pain. And uh, we should pray for continued uh, healing for the gallstones uh, that he suffered with. Um, Pray for those mourning. Um, The Crosby family uh, is mourning the death of Jim's grandma, Uh, Gertrude Hawkins, whose funeral was on Monday. Um, And then, uh, again, we need to be in prayer for uh, those still traveling from Thanksgiving and also for the children who will receive the boxes we prepared for our shoebox ministry. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this day, reminded by the activities of the previous week, of how thankful we should be, of how you have provided absolutely everything we need and are owed all our gratitude. Father, our hearts are overwhelmed once more because your law reveals to us we can't even come before you based on our merits. We would deserve your wrath and to be cast away from you except that you sent your beloved Son in grace even when we were your enemies to reconcile us and make us your sons and daughters. Lord, we stand in awe of the love that you have thus shown us. And we pray that you would lead us daily to not only acknowledge Christ as our Savior, but to resolve anew to live a life of thanksgiving to you. And though we are weak and inconstant in our discipleship, though we've often fallen into those old patterns of sin, yet we pray that you would transform us and use us and invigorate us that we might become instruments 
of evangelization, that we might be instruments of the gospel, that people looking on us might see the work that you have done and ask the reason for the hope within us and hear from our lips how graciously and gloriously you've treated us. Father, teach us to confess to our families, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to everyone you set before us where our hope is found, where our confidence rests. Father, we thank you that, that you provide for us in our difficult times. We're so thankful that you allowed both Dan and Ryan to experience relief from their pain and that you've been providing what they need day by day. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct in their treatment and that you would build up and strengthen them and not only them, but others in our midst who are dealing with, uh, with cancer and with various ailments. We think of um, Sherry with the, the swelling that she's still experiencing in her eye and the, um, the troubles that has brought upon her vision. We pray for healing for her, for Keith and Lori. As Keith has been uh, dealing with dizziness and headaches, and they're both dealing with, uh, with the effects of various ailments of the age, with Parkinson's and dementia. Lord, we pray for comfort and patience and strengthening for them, for Joel with his leukemia and the, the treatments for that that are so hard on his body, for uh, Dan's radiation treatments for cancer, and for others in our midst who are dealing with ailments of the body with seasonal colds and, and uh, struggles. For those mourning, Father, we pray for the, the Crosbys especially, but also others who are grieving at this time. Lord, enable us to, to grieve as those who know the hope of Christ. We pray, Father, for those whose ailments are more difficult to, to pinpoint or to see, those dealing with depression, or anxiety, Father, we pray that you would provide for each one. Likewise, for those who are pregnant and expecting babies, Lord, knit those little ones together in the womb, strengthen and bless them, even as you prepare the parents for welcoming them and discipling them in their homes. Bless those preparing for marriage, that they might marry well in the Lord, with Christ at the center of their relationship. We pray for our extended family members, Lord, who are uh, dealing with various ailments for Jim, uh, Marv, and Sherry's brother-in-law, and uh, his struggle against cancer for uh, Beth's mom, Cheryl, as she's in hospice care and, and growing weaker, for Larry's son, Dan, continuing to recover from a heart attack and, and uh, related struggles. For little Andrea, uh, Rod and Jamie's niece, and her beginning to deal with muscular dystrophy. For Judy's sister, uh, sister-in-law, Marcia, uh, dealing with cancer, and, and Travis's cousin, Nick, uh, and his family. Lord, we lay all of these before you, as well as others who lay upon our hearts and we pray that you would provide as only you are able with healing and help and strength and most of all with a growing confidence in you as each of these recognizes that, that though 
life in this fallen world is not without end. Your love is. And your love, your provision is precisely what we need. We pray, Father, for those still to travel at the end of their Thanksgiving outings, that you would give them safe travel and, and uh, allow them to return home safely and refreshed. We pray, Father, for the, for the church. You know all our needs. You know all our doubts and fears. You know also the opportunities you set before us to minister to one another and to those uh, around us. Equip us, build us up, and strengthen us to that end. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to minister. We thank you for the uh, shoebox ministry that we participate in. We pray for the little children who will receive those boxes that we've filled this year. That you would use those to encourage and strengthen them, but especially in the gospel. Allow them to see in those gifts a token of your love. And a reminder that they are dependent, as we all are, upon you. Father, we pray for our members who can't worship with us, though they long to. We think of Jane and Mary Ellen. We pray for comfort for them, also our distant members. We ask that you would watch over and bless and keep them for Peter and Greta, for Nathan and Calvin, uh, for Joanna. Lord, we pray for each of these that you would provide exactly what they need. We, uh, Lord, we thank you. Though we each know struggles and trials, you fill our lives with good things. Build us up and strengthen us in the knowledge of your generosity and your love. Fill us to overflowing with a, a love for you that drives us to tell others about you. And not us alone, but your people in every place where they gather. Lord, preserve and protect your church. Preserve the freedom that you've given us that we might speak freely. And fill us with such conviction and love that we're willing to use that freedom to tell others about you. Bless the word that is preached today, both here and everywhere where your people gather. Nurture and build up and strengthen your people through your word and spirit. And cause us, Lord, to grow closer to you through it. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look to God's word, um, let's sing together. We're going to stand and sing uh, from Psalm 52. Selection 97 in our Psalter hymnal. Uh, we'll sing stanza 1 and then 4 through 6.
Continuing in our series, looking at some of the women in the line of Christ's earthly nature, coming to the third mother of Christ that we're going to look at. We're looking this morning at Rebecca in Genesis 25. And I'd like to start reading at verse 19 and continue throughout the end of the chapter. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her, her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been said, be careful what you wish for, you might get it. Well, theologically speaking, wishes aren't all that powerful, are they? However, prayers... Well, prayer is exceedingly powerful. God tends to listen to prayer and answer with an abundance and a power that sometimes surprises us. If you would transform that old saying into be careful what you pray for, well, I think Rebecca would probably nod her head eagerly. Like Sarah, her mother-in-law, Rebecca was eager to have children, and her eagerness lasted a long time. Although she knew that God had promised rich blessings to the offspring of her husband Isaac, Rebecca was unable to bear children, unable to conceive. And not just for a short time. For nearly 20 years, her barrenness persisted. But Isaac 
was praying. Her husband was interceding on her behalf and God heard. God answered Isaac's prayer richly, sending not one but two children to grow in her womb. And yet sometimes rich blessings in this world can be accompanied by deep heartache. And so it was in this case. Our text from Genesis 25 shows us how God sends Rebekah a mixed blessing of raising radically different twins. And that's our theme this morning. This gift of twins is a blessing that brings both joy and sorrow, both peace and struggle. And all of that brings significant lessons for us. So as we examine what God is doing in sending Rebecca this mixed blessing of radically different twins, we see first of all how he elects her sons to constant conflict, which is our first point. Now, it's really tough for us to comprehend, most of us, how joyous was the news of Rebecca's pregnancy. I mean, they married late at 40 years old. But they knew that God had promised a child. And doubtless they anticipated that God would hurry things right up. But as the years dragged on and still there was no child, five years, ten years, fifteen years, how that heartache grew. How the doubts and the fears must have multiplied, just as they had with Sarah and Abraham. They were a nomadic people. Imagine how every spring as she looked at Isaac's fields filled with kids and lambs and then felt the flatness of her stomach, how she longed to have little ones of her own. And then suddenly she did. Suddenly there was life in her womb. Suddenly there was fullness in what had long been empty. How they must have rejoiced at the thought of how God had not only sent this blessing, but all the promises He had, had given with regard to this child. God said that He would bring forth nations from this child's offspring. The blood of princes and kings would pulse through His veins. And ultimately, every nation would be blessed from the fruit of her womb. The joy that Rebecca must have felt, and Isaac with her, was unfathomable. But then, at some point, something seemed wrong. There was movement. That was good. But the movement was too violent. The movement was too harsh. Surely, being a first-time mother, she was worried. Might this mean that something was wrong? Might this mean that, that there was a miscarriage on the way? She took her concerns, her fears, her disquiet to the Lord. The heart of her question is really quite straightforward. Why is this happening to me? Rebecca wanted to know not only what was happening, but especially why. After waiting for so long to be expectant of a child... Why now was it so painful? Why now was there something wrong? And so we read, she went to inquire of the Lord. Now we don't know how she did so, 
whether by prayer or by prophet or through her husband. But one way or another, she brings her questions and her, her concerns to the Lord. And God answered. And what his answer showed was that God had elected her sons to conflict. Now, to be clear, kids, when I speak of election here, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about God choosing, selecting, determining, making a decree about something. And he revealed to Rebecca that he had chosen with regard to her offspring that there would not be one, there would be two. She would have twins. Having gone so long without, now Rebecca would be given a rich blessing. And these twins would be powerful men. They would be influential, not just within their family, but throughout the world. Nations would come from them. And yet it would not be one nation, it would be two nations, and they would be separated. And that's where the bad news starts. Because they would not be at peace, these sons of hers, nor the nations that they sired. They would be in conflict. They would be set against one another. One would be stronger. The other would be weaker. One would serve while the other would be served. And interestingly, fascinatingly, it is the strong who would serve the weak, the greater who would serve the lesser. This is what God tells Rebekah about her sons. The older, bigger, more impressive one, he would become the servant of the, the smaller, the lesser, the younger. The last, even at this early stage of redemptive history, the last would be first. The lesser would serve the greater. Thus does God reveal his election of the sons within Rebekah's womb. And so, in fact, does it come to be. The day of her delivery arrives, and as God foretold, there are two. And yet these twins are not identical by any stretch of the imagination. Sometimes you have trouble telling twins apart even when they're not identical. Not in this case. Esau comes out, he's covered with hair. Red hair. And he's vigorous. And then immediately thereafter, his brother comes out holding on to his heel, Esau and Jacob. The two boys are unique in their looks. They're unique in their dispositions. Very soon they will show that also their attitudes, their desires, their gifts are very different. And those differences would set them at odds. Sometimes you have... You have siblings that are very different. I, I see that in my own kids. It was fun last week having all of the kids home. And you'd think being raised in the same house, they'd all be alike. They're not. They're very different. Each one of them is radically different from the next. We see that in all our families. And so it was in Jacob and Esau, but where in some families that knits them together. They see how this one has these strengths and this one has these strengths and they help one another. Jacob and Esau, it pulled them apart in their differences. And it put them in conflict. Now before we see that conflict, we need to recognize the chief lesson in the first part of this text. The lesson that permeates this first half of our text, is that God is in charge. That's the subtext. That's the underlying message, really, of this whole passage. Look at all the ways God demonstrated to Rebekah that he was the one, not she, not Isaac. He was the one in charge. 
They tried for 20 years to conceive, but only God could provide a child. They did not ask for twins. They didn't seek multiple children. They were looking for one son, and God determined to send two. He determined what sort of sons Rebekah would have. He ordained all of their strengths, all of their weaknesses, all of the things that made them different. And ultimately, it would all be for his glory and for the salvation that he ordained. Through the sons, recognize, through the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, God was forming the family of his son. He was setting forth the bloodlines, establishing the parentage. God the Father preparing the path for God the Son to come into the world. And God was providing for him perfectly, in the perfect manner, in the perfect time, so that when the Son came... When that son came, it would be undeniable that God had done all of it. He sent his son. He ordained all of the circumstances. And in fact, when that son came forth, he would fulfill, even just in his birth, hundreds of prophecies. Such that it would be statistically impossible for one person to fulfill all of them, and yet he did. You see, our God is sovereign. Nothing comes to pass, period. And certainly so in the life of his people, except what he ordains. We need to know that. I mean, Rebecca certainly needed to know that. They were headed for rocky times. Some children are easy to raise, some are not. They were going to have a rocky path. These kids were going to be at odds all the way. They were going to have to rely on the Lord and they were going to have to remember that this was from God. That God ordained this. God was going to use this. And we need to remember that too. We need to remember that in the circumstances of life. Sometimes that job that you thought was going to be your dream job, it's not. It's filled with hardship, it's filled with strife, it's filled with people that make things hard. Sometimes that family that you longed for, prayed for, it turns out there's a lot of heartache in the midst of it. Those plans that you carefully laid, they can go awry in an instant. And we need to remember that God is on the throne, that God is the one in charge. And we especially need to remember that when it comes to our salvation. We look at our lives and we're so apt to second guess. If only I had made this choice, if only I had taken that path. No, we can't look back and second guess because God ordained it all. Yes, He used our wisdom, our insight in the moment, the people around us who influenced us, yes, our thought processes, but ultimately He ordained what path we would take so that for each one of us who belongs to Him, it's working for our good. And we have to remember that. He's the one who put you in the family that you grew up in. With all of the blessings of that family and also its flaws. He's the one who caused you to hear the gospel. Maybe you responded immediately. You never remember a time when you didn't trust wholeheartedly in the Lord. Maybe. Maybe there's a lot of years that you regret because you didn't. Trust in Him. But in that time, He was teaching you lessons that you would need so that later on, after you did turn to the Lord, you'd be able to minister to those that are walking in their stubbornness and their rebellion. 
That's not to excuse your sin by any means, but it is to say that God is able to use even our rebellion, even our sin, in a way that will equip us to serve Him better. That's how amazingly sovereign, how amazingly good, how amazingly perfect our God is. And not only that, but He has, if you're His, He has worked all of those circumstances together to draw you to Christ so that you could be saved. He ensured that the gospel was preached to you in the way and at the time that you needed it after your heart had been perfectly prepared by His Spirit and by the people in your life so that it would fall on that, that gospel would fall on your heart like seed on freshly plowed, cultivated, fertilized soil. And it would grow. And then He put in your life the sacraments and the elders, and the parents, and the mentors who would nurture that fledgling faith and would cause it to grow and flourish and build so that you would not only have salvation, but that you would be equipped to serve Him wholeheartedly in ways that you could never have dreamed. Beloved, if we are to have life, and if we are to use the life that He gives us in Christ, it has to be through Him. It doesn't depend at all on us. We see that in the law, don't we? There's no way, if we're honest with ourselves, there's no way we can keep all of those commandments. And there's certainly no way we can pay for all of the sins that we've committed. It has to be Christ who saves us. And if it was Christ who saves us, then it's got to be Christ who ordains to use us, who equips us, who sends us out who guides our words and our thoughts and our cares so that we're able to serve Him. God is sovereign, and if He wasn't, we would have no hope. So it falls then to us, brothers and sisters, to praise Him. Man, especially, we just had Thanksgiving. And you know, we, we look at Thanksgiving and we think about traditions and we think about feasting, and that's all fine, that's all good. But don't forget to do the thanks part. Right? We need to stop and recognize how abundantly God has blessed us. Take some time. Some of you guys love to hunt. You love to sit out in the woods. Man, that is the perfect time. Sit on that stand, and while you're waiting for that beautiful big buck to stroll up, think about the multitude of ways that God prepared you for this moment in your life. How He worked when you were just a little, a little one. And had no idea what he was doing. The people that he put in your life. The way that he molded you and shaped you. The way he prepared you for this career. For this family. For these opportunities. Look at all the ways he's blessed you. And not just the hunters, obviously. Find time. All of us. We need to find time. To recognize God's sovereign care and provision for us. And to praise him. Praise Him in your heart. Praise Him singing psalms when you're all alone. Praise Him to your friends when you tell them what He's done. Sure, it'll feel awkward first time, second time, but it'll come second nature pretty quick. Tell them what an amazing God we serve so that they can look to Him, so that they can have confidence in Him. And the more you do that, the more you will love Him, the more you will glorify Him, the more you will delight to see how God is at work within you, even in the hard things. And at the same time, we need to recognize that God's sovereign election, God's sovereign work within our lives, 
does not mean that people are passive. That's what we see in the second half of this text, where God reveals the spiritual separation, the spiritual separation of Rebekah's sons. Verse 27 starts by telling us the boys grew up. Now, there's a lot wrapped up in those words, isn't there? I mean, we go from their birth to their adulthood. They've endured years of discipline and learning and changing. They've made decisions, good and bad. They've demonstrated the gifts that God has given to them. They've grown calluses from the work before them. And through that process, they have grown very differently and very much apart. Their decisions, their actions, their choices have led them down two very different paths. In verse 27, Moses describes them for us. Esau, we read, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Put that in modern terms and I imagine a lot of us could relate to Esau, right? This is the guy wearing camo pants and making sure he hits all the hunting seasons. He's probably got a truck that'll make it through the mud, right? This is a guy who likes to be outside. He's strong. He's up for an adventure. You don't see him around a lot because he's out in the field. And his dad loves him. Loves the game that he brings in. Probably loves the stories that he brings with the game. Jacob, on the other hand, is very, very different. He was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, we need to be careful with Jacob. So many times I've heard him described as a con man, a schemer. But, you know, that's unfair given the description we find here. What's not unfair is to say he's very different from Esau. The word rendered quiet in the ESV, it literally suggests a, a soundness, a level-headedness. Basically means that Jacob's a thinker. Whereas Esau wanted to go out and do and explore and accomplish, Jacob wanted to sit and think and understand and plan. He didn't need to be out in the field. He wanted to be in the tent. He wanted to sit there and pour over the, the old scrolls. He wanted to hear the old stories. He wanted to think. Jacob dwelt in tents. Well, so did Esau. Although Esau spent probably more nights out of the tent and out in the field. But what that means is that Jacob was content to be among people, among civilization. Honestly, it's hard to imagine two brothers that could be more different. But their differences aren't really just about their hobbies and their dispositions. At root, the Lord reveals, their differences involve a spiritual separation. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that uh, dwelling inside and doing academic work is superior to, you know, being an outdoorsman. That's not what he's saying. That's just demonstrating that they're very different. The spiritual separation is what we see next. The little vignette that starts in verse 29. Jacob is staying among the tents. He's doing some cooking, making some lentil stew. And all of a sudden, Esau blows in from his latest rambling, exhausted, dirty, hungry. Now, our pew Bible is very, very gentle in rendering what Esau says. 
Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. That's not what he said. You know what he said? Probably the best way we can render it in English is, Quick, give me some of that red stuff. That, that red stuff. I'm exhausted. It's just, it's very guttural and blunt in the Hebrew. And he, he doesn't even call it stew. He just says, the red, this red. It's just blunt. And it's a demand. It's not a polite question. It's not a gentle inquiry. Do you think you could share some of that? No. He comes in and he demands it. Now, Jacob knows his brother. He understands what Esau is like. That he doesn't plan. He doesn't look at the big picture. He sees what is in front of him. And that's what he wants. So Jacob knows that this is his opportunity because he longs for Esau's birthright. Now stop there. What is a birthright? Speaking historically, a birthright in that culture was the unique privilege that came to the first son. The oldest son, well, when dad died, he would get twice the inheritance of all the other children. But that wasn't the big thing. The first son, he was the one in whom the family's name and reputation were bound up. Right? So he was kind of second in command to dad. And when dad got old, when dad got started having a hard time leading the family. And remember, families back then, especially in that culture, they were together for generations, right? They didn't move to different states and different regions for the most part. They were together. And uh, that was Esau's job. When dad started getting older, he was to start taking over. He was to start managing the flocks and herds, managing the family, leading things. He wasn't, was he? He's out hunting. That's what Jacob's actually doing. Jacob is doing already the job of the firstborn. Because Esau's too concerned with here and now, with what he wants, with what he desires. And in their case, it's even bigger. Because God had promised Abraham that from him would come a son through whom all the nations would be blessed. That son wasn't directly Isaac, but he would come through Isaac. He would come through Isaac's sons, and eventually there would come that one child, that one son who would bless all the nations, particularly in fulfilling that promise that we saw to Eve, that he would crush the head of the serpent, and all that that involved, all of the curse, all of the the suffering, all of the separation that had come about by sin, even at the cost of his own deep suffering as Satan struck him on the heel. Now please understand, that's that's the birthright. That's the heart of the birthright for this family. And they knew it. Remember, they're grown men. Isaac, for whatever flaws he had, he was a godly man. Remember, he was interceding for his wife, praying that God would fulfill the promise for her. Surely by this point, he had catechized his sons well. They knew about the promise to Eve. They knew about the promise to Abraham. They knew that they and their line was special. That was the birthright. And Jacob, though he was second born by a moment or two, 
He longed for that birthright to come through him. And he knew Esau didn't care. And that's a problem. Because you see, it's not just about Jacob wanting twice the livestock. It's not that at all. It's about Jacob wanting to be part of that promise that God had given. Jacob wanting to feel that blessing that God had assured them was coming. And so he looks at Esau who's desperate for the thing in front of him. And he says, sell me your birthright. What right is a birthright or what good's a birthright to me? I'm about to die of starvation. Okay, then swear to me that the birthright is mine. Fine, it's yours. I swear it. Here's your soup. This isn't the main point of this text. But we need to ask ourselves, am I sometimes willing to settle for a bowl of soup? Am I willing to settle for something that's here and gone rather than the eternal promises of God? It's been said that maturity can be seen in a young man or a young woman in their willingness to delay satisfaction, right? Their willingness to, to work hard or do the hard thing now in order for a better reward later rather than enjoying the momentary reward of laziness. Jacob was looking at the future. Jacob was looking at the promise. Esau was looking at a bowl of stew. We need to be careful. Now, we don't want to turn this into a moralistic text by any means. Be like Jacob, don't be like Esau. But there is a lesson in that, isn't there? The bigger lesson, however... The bigger lesson is that these sons of Rebekah had been elected to radically different ends, and those ends were spiritual ends. God himself had chosen their futures. We're going to see tonight, our, our scripture reading for uh, the canons of Dort is going to be from Romans 9. And in part of that text, we're going to see that before they were ever born or had done anything good or bad, God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Jacob is mine, Esau is cast off. But you see, the boys didn't know that. Rebecca did. It's not the kind of thing you tell your sons. The boys demonstrated it right here. They demonstrated it right here. Jacob have I loved. Because Jacob would cling to God in faith. Jacob would look to that promised son and be confident in God's promises. Because God had ordained to love him. And that always comes out in the way that we live. Esau, Esau hardened his heart. He only cared about what was here and now. He had no care for God's promises. He had no concern for what God had offered for the future. He just wanted that bowl of stew. He just wanted that next hunting trip. He just wanted that new adventure. And because he scorned God, he remained in that death and that rebellion and that hatred in which all men are born. And you could see it in how he scorned God. God is unveiling 
his election and reprobation here. God is demonstrating the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which flows throughout every generation of mankind. And he reveals it through their response to him. He reveals it through their day-to-day behavior. And brothers and sisters, he does the same today. Now obviously, he's also laying the groundwork in these brothers and in Jacob especially, for his son who would save us, for Jesus Christ who would come at the perfect time in the perfect line to do all the perfect things to deliver us from our sin. But brothers and sisters, each one of us is also a Jacob or an Esau. Each one of us has either been elected to eternal life or reprobate, left to live the life that we willingly choose, which is a life of rebellion. Which are you? You will demonstrate the answer invariably in the life you live. Obviously, only God can bring us to Christ. But if He is bringing you to Christ, your life will demonstrate it. You won't be consumed only with that bowl of stew. You won't be consumed only with that thrill in front of you right now. But you will increasingly long for the promises. You will increasingly long to experience the blessing of God in your life. You will more and more cherish God and His Word. You will take up that law not as something that we simply need to read once a week to remind us, oh yeah, I'm not good enough. No, but as something that you can take hold of to show your thanks. This is what would delight God, so this is what I will do. God wants me to worship only Him, to serve only Him, so I need to... I need to scour my life for false gods and get rid of them. God wants me to worship not in the way that comes natural to me, but in the way He's commanded. So I'd better study His Word and find out what that looks like. God wants me to not take His name lightly, so I'd better use His name reverently. God wants me to honor the Sabbath day so that I can devote that day not to my work, not to my labor, not to my glory, but to His I'm going to take that seriously. God wants, etc., right? If we truly are elect, if we're truly trusting in God and His promises, that'll reveal itself in all of life. That will reveal itself in the way that we serve the Lord from our faith. Thing is, we can't do it on our own. As I said when we looked at the law, we, we can't use that law as a ladder. So if we would demonstrate that we belong to Him, if we would demonstrate that we are in fact of the line of Jacob, then that's got to be from God. So we need to make it our prayer, brothers and sisters. Again, having evaluated all the ways that God has been sovereignly at work in our lives, evaluating how He has blessed and prepared, we need to be in prayer that God would equip us, that God would direct us, that God would fill us with a desire and a passion to serve Him, to demonstrate that our faith in Christ is real. That's a prayer that He delights in, a prayer that He delights to answer. And we will begin seeing that evidence that His Spirit is at work within us, that our faith is, in fact, genuine, and that we are among those whom God has elected to love.
May God make that our passionate desire. And may he use us to bring honor and glory to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you alone are able to give us the strength, the power, the faith to love and serve you. That we might turn to Christ and be saved and that our lives might be filled with the evidence of that faith. Father, we pray that you would would indeed give us the power and the desire to do that. Demonstrating by its fruits that the root of faith within us is real. And Father, we pray that you would allow none of us to rest content with the thing in front of us, with the momentary passions and pleasures, refusing to think of eternity, refusing to turn our hearts unto you. Father, we pray this with thanksgiving that you hear us and that for Christ's sake you love us. And so it's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Beloved, in response, let's stand and sing together hymn number 242 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 242, we'll sing all the stanzas of Father Long Before Creation.
Let us pray. Father, You are so gracious and good to us. You have provided us with everything we need for body and for soul. Receive now the tithes and the offerings that we bring as a token of our thanks, a demonstration of our faith that You who have provided will provide in days to come. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 270 from our Psalter hymnal. 270, Bless the Man that Fears Jehovah. God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.